This is Fundraising Radio, and today's guest speaker will have Christian Camier, Managing Partner at Systemy Capital. And in this episode, we're going to talk about how to pitch to a blockchain VC, what information should you include in these sort of pitches, and so forth. Well, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Systemy Capital. Yeah, so my partner and I have been in technology investing for some 20 years at this point. The funny accent that you hear my voice originated in Germany. I was a programmer in the 80s at Siemens, Siemens Nixdorf at the time. So I learned programming languages such as basic and stuff, which obviously today has very little value, but provides some solid background in terms of understanding logic trees and understanding programming in general. So I can read most code, but then consequently I get kind of disenchanted with the space that wasn't moving fast enough. So I went to law school, got a law degree, and because of my interest in technology, ended up being heavily involved in, um, at the time, the deregulation of the European telecommunication markets. I wrote some minor regulation papers that actually made it into law and consequently became general counsel of an early internet service provider. We were selling dial-up services in the mid late 90s. And then we got super lucky merging the company with what's now the largest internet service provider in Europe, Tiscali. And so I used that opportunity in early 2000s then to retire from the law and then a couple of months later also moved to Southern California. And initially what we did, we set up a venture fund that was focused on voice of IP solutions and multi-massive online player games. And for people who kind of understand what the blockchain space is about, you will find a lot of similarities um, with those topics and blockchain in, in particular. So blockchain being peer-to-peer solutions, voice of IP being one of the very early prominent peer-to-peer solutions and MMOPGs, multi-massive online player games already had exchange rates of the in-game currencies to the US dollar back in the late 90s. So for us, uh, the topic of Uh, virtual currencies and the topic of peer-to-peer solutions was a very common thread as such we went into the blockchain space very early and were one of the first allocators to the space my partner founded the ethereum meetups here that's how we met and then eventually we set up this particular vehicle sustainable capital um, creating what we call the the protocol fund and that is just comprised of our own assets and uh, it's about 30, 35 million in assets under management. But again, it's just our own assets. We actually haven't allowed on purpose um, others to allocate to the fund because we wanted to spend a lot of time actually building solid thesis papers. That mm-hmm. it comes down to what we kind of discussed before. We like to kind of use a very scientific um, driven approach to investing. So we actually write thesis papers and then narrow down the type of topics that we are interested in investing that we find timely and then essentially run those theses against um, projects in the space that we think have interesting solutions and so in that context we now have probably more than a thousand peer reviews on those ideas and so we now feel very confident in our approach that we think it's time to allow others into the fund as well. So we're raising a new fund of about $200 million at this point in time. That's, that's an impressive sum of money. So first question here, I would ask you is this, 
on your website, I don't think there is even a button saying contact us or it doesn't give any contact information. So how do you source your deals? Where do you get your deals from? Well, most of our deals are being sent through our community. We were one of the first players in the space. And we are a little different, I think, than a lot of the venture funds, as in we're super technical. Most of our employees here have engineering degrees. We have a hedge fund and data science team with financial engineers and data scientists. And we also um, facilitate our own skunk work projects where we finance ourselves um, teams that are partially in-house, partially in other countries. Um, so we are very deep in, in the technology space. We probably have contact with every relevant project in the space as an early allocator. And they, for the most part, send us interesting new developments that most people have never heard of. Because uh, this, at this stage, is super technical still. And a lot of the um, core development, as you probably know, um, is happening in the open source space. And then in the later stages, people start developing business solutions around that. And a lot of times, these will come from people that have been early in the space and just being basically contributing code to the space and then realized, okay, we need kind of a front-facing solution to that that people can actually um, subscribe to and uh, create additional value. So that's a, a big portion of that. And then other than that, it's just people basically searching for us and or the word gets out and or people find my uh, single social media profile, if you will, on, on LinkedIn. <laughs> I don't really participate much in the others. Once in a while, I publish something on Twitter, uh, put something out on Twitter, but for the most part, I limit it kind of to LinkedIn and on LinkedIn, on a weekly basis, I'd say, I don't know, I'd get 10, 20, probably more projects that, that come through that. I, I'm about to max out kind of my contacts uh, on there at this point. Got it. That's, that's pretty interesting. So you've published several articles. They were published in, on Forbes, and one of them is how to pitch to a blockchain VC. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Can we go a little bit in depth? into sure. what you think is a good way of pitching to a blockchain VC? Yeah, so the first startup I joined was in 1994. We tried to build a um, unified messaging system on the AOL backbone of all things at the time. So I've been around the space for a long time. So both on um, both sides, if you will, both as, um, as a startup um, facilitator, like raising money myself and then eventually on the other side. And there's like constant things that we see um, that are not being done. And like for us, having been in the space for such a long time, it's actually fairly easy. And at that point in time, it's very surprising that those simple things are not being done. So the, the typical one would be just your starting point. Put yourself into the shoes of a, an investor, right, that has certain funds set aside to allocate to specific projects. I mean, A, as a principle, well, if we allocate to a project, we obviously want to make a return. That seems um, simple enough, but you want to actually try to run those numbers in your head yourself as a startup so that you, at the end of the day, kind of put the investor into a position where he can run this these numbers on a napkin rather than needing to do um, a complicated exercise. Those are actually the best projects to allocate to, in right. my opinion. So the, the question is simply, so 
if I give you half a million dollars, how, how do you turn my half million dollars into 50 million? And, and obviously it always depends on the stage of the company, right? So you, your starting point in the beginning is always, well, you need to kind of prove that people actually want to give you money and then how many people are there in this particular space. So the, the typical total addressable market and that's where we see kind of a lot of shortcomings. I can tell you how many times in my life, must have been hundreds of times, I look at a slide and it says something like, the total addressable market is the value of all real estate. And, <laughs> and literally, right. I, 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 yeah. I, I've seen it so many times. It's, I mean, it's, it's obvious that if you provide a software that serves real estate agents, that your total addressable market is not the value of all real estate. Right? <laughs> And, and yeah, one of the most common pet peeves that we see and have as investors is that projects don't seem to spend a lot of time on actually uh, um, establishing the total addressable market. And the typical example for that is that of you providing real estate software, but then you show us a slide that shows the value of all real estate in the world. And needless to say, that is not your total addressable market, but is whatever you think you can extract in form of fees or subscriptions uh, from people that are actually working in that space and pay want to pay for your software right and then mm -hmm. the next obvious point is uh, what do you need to spend to get the attention of those people and then convert them to paying subscribers right which is your customer acquisition cost right so and then you want to put this into a useful business model. I mean, for some time there has been kind of this misguided idea. Well, we'll figure it out later, which again, in my opinion, it's a misguided idea. It's nothing that we are interested in investing and you actually want to start with a business model, at least have an idea. I mean, you can always pivot later, but start out with a theory, a thesis on how will you be able to um, multiply the investment that you're getting. Right. And right. then, the next very obvious step, and a lot of investors spend a lot of time explaining that, is what, what's, how do you prove product market fit? Because unless you have product market fit, in my opinion, uh, you actually don't want to spend a lot of money on customer acquisition because you, you can't actually scale that, right? You, you need mm -hmm. to have a th sound theory, and then you want to spend a little bit of funds to prove that theory, i.e., if I spend $100, can I... Um, acquire a client that pays me at least that over a certain period of time and then slowly over time expand on that theory meaning allocate more sources to that right because for us we are very much technology investors right we're, we're not investing in in your marketing efforts right we want to see that the technology is being built and can be scaled and that that means that your metrics are um, established to a certain degree depending on the states that we're investing in and then simply focus on actual customer problems. And that's like a big pet peeve in the space to this day, which is something we've been pointing out probably for five, six years. So specific in the, the blockchain space, there's kind of this battle cry that I still hear every single morning. I listen to a lot of podcasts where people say something like, well, cryptocurrency adoption, right? And that's backwards. So what I, what I mean by that is, that as a technology um, project, your job is to adapt the, adapt the technology to the user and you don't expect 
the user to adapt to your technology. And so the simple example that I have been citing for that for a very long time is users really didn't adapt voice over IP, right? So they adapted Skype, they adapted WhatsApp. So they, they now when you, you ask someone, well, do you use voice over IP? Most people won't know that they do, right? And they shouldn't have to know, right? That's again, that's the job of the technology yeah. is to adapt the technology that you don't have to to know that. So expecting that people will adopt cryptocurrency, in my opinion, it's it's a, a quixotic exercise, right? It's in my opinion it will never happen. I have this one slide that's the only slide that's using more than um, blue tones, which has a yellow banana on this with a Bitcoin price. And I ask people in the room, how many adopt, uh, how many people in the room expect to, to see this particular picture ever? So if you're expecting that, it's like um, you probably need to check in with some basic um, principles of business. That, that <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, if your unit of account that you have been indoctrinated in is, let's say, the US dollar, what is the likelihood that you're going to switch to something else? It's very slim, right? It's, it's that... Um, kind of quixotic exercise that people tried a very long time ago where, they, where there was an attempt to introduce a world language, which in principle is a really great idea and that should exist. But um, that language, Esperanto, was adapted, I think, at its height by 100, 150,000 people in the world, right? Because <laughs> it's just very, very difficult to convince someone who has been indoctrinated in one particular language and that's what um quote unquote money is but that's what currencies are so to speak it's a language of trade it's a language of how you value things so if that's what you've been indoctrinated in that's your frame of reference to change that frame of reference is extremely hard it will only happen if your current thinking fails in its entirety if everybody around you stop speaking English and all of a sudden you have to <laughs> adapt to Spanish, you'll do it. But as long as that's not happening, the chances that you're going to adapt a new language is very hard. So that holds true for US dollars or, or yen or whatever your current language of trade is. Right? And I think it's, it's just a failure of, I don't know, imagination to, to think that um, people will adapt uh, something like cryptocurrency, but you'll find this uh, uh, every single day. Still, it's it's very surprising. Anyway, I love that comparison. Usually, people who are investing in blockchain or who are involved in blockchain, they always try to find me saying that in fifty years, uh, regular money will not exist anymore. I'm like, people, no, it will still be here in fifty years, probably in five hundred years, maybe possibly. Yeah, and and I saw yeah. So the the main I think failure uh, to recognize there is what money is today. And I blame to a large portion uh, the business schools for that, because still to this day, as far as I can tell and what I hear from people that came out of it, is money is still defined as a unit of account, medium of exchange and store value, which is a definition that goes back to i think 1876 or something uh, by a british economist called javons and the, the same year that he coined that that particular definition um there was a patent filed for the phone and the phones don't quite look 
like that phone anymore that the pen was tied <laughs> for. And money definitely doesn't look the same way that it looked um, during that time. So, but specifically, just to give you a shortcut to that, is money hasn't been a store of value, right? For it's at least in the United States since about 1971 when Nixon single-handedly decided we want to break with the gold standard and then consequently with the gold exchange standard. Those are two different things, but right. Um, so, and so you and everybody else in the world kind of stopped thinking of money as a store of value, meaning you only kind of keep as much, uh, fiat around, which is really not money. If you think about it, it's that, uh -huh as you kind of expect to spend in the like foreseeable future and the typical example I always mentioned for that is you don't leave a million dollars in your checking account right because you just yeah. know that it's inflationary and even yep. it doesn't matter what inflation rates you subscribe to and um in my opinion definitely the inflation rate that's been propagated by the central banks are uh, entirely false <laughs> to say <laughs> it lightly but so that criteria um, fell by the wayside. And then the medium of exchange is often misunderstood as in a lot of people think like Bitcoin will become a medium of exchange or many of the other quote unquote cryptocurrencies, terrible term, uh, will become a medium of exchange. But that's, um, to put it blind, um, mildly, it's nonsense because the medium of exchange already has defaulted simply to bytes, right? Um, the the value is an entry typically in some form of centralized database today, right? So when mm -hmm. when you send me a hundred dollars, right, then you call up your bank, you log into your banking account or something, and uh, the banking software or your bank is adjusting your ledger. Then overnight reconciles with the Federal Reserve system, and then. The next day, if I'm lucky, my bank will adjust my ledger, which also tells you that the current banking system is a DLT or more accurately a federated DLT, distributed ledger technology. And that's that's a big part that urges me when people explain blockchain as DLTs because blockchains are the opposite of DLTs. And so, but to bring this back to money, so since it, the the default medium of exchange defaulted to bytes and that's true for about 97 percent of all transactions there's really only one function left which is that of unit of account and we talked about that before that's just language so long story short if once you realize the current state of money if we analyze the current stage of money that's your starting point for building new technologies, which doesn't mean that you go back in time and reinvent commodity money, which is kind of what all these stablecoin projects sure. are. They're kind of intellectual time travel, reinventing commodity money. Well, money has moved on as technology. Just adapt to that, right? Adapt mm -hmm. to the fact that money has changed and whatever you want to do um, for any of the underlying problems that the fiat systems um, have created by being inflationary, by introducing a lot of middlemen that are really not needed from a technology perspective, do that, but don't go back in time and try to reinvent something like commodity money. It's like the example or the visual I make for that is this, it's like trying to nail a gold coin to a speed of light, right? Bytes move at the speed of light, and there's really no reason to attach a store of value to that. 
because the store of value function is different for everybody. Like you and I have very different ideas of what we consider to be valuable. So the which is kind of a trifold function. It's a function of portfolio distribution and time horizon. And then simply what you consider to be valuable, i.e. it might be real estate, it might be stocks, it might be bonds, it might be whatever it is, but it's kind of a personal preference rather mm -hmm. than something that's that should be in any shape or form attached to a medium of exchange. We really got into a technical set of the money. <laughs> I myself don't even understand some of the stuff that you're saying right now. So let's get back to the fundraising sure, sorry. questions yeah, that I are a bit I easier. I to go down rabbit holes a lot because, yeah, um, as you can tell, I mean, we're in the space because we're super excited about the right. Yeah. right? And there is so many. And so it's sort of frustrating to see when teams spend their energies on something that really either doesn't matter or confuses um, the problems that it solves with the technology problem, right? Got it. So in our pre-screening call before the interview, you said that you've seen some projects that were really killed by lawyers and advisors who just gave poor advice. Can you go a little bit in depth into that, especially to the legal side? Sure. Yeah. And so two caveats to that. A, so I'm very much a technologist at heart and I'm mostly kind of a lawyer by training or by it. I was a lawyer for a short period of time. But so my my legal education, as you notice from the introduction, is from Europe where things work a little different um, mm -hmm. than they do here. So it's it's obviously warped and influenced by that perspective, i.e. in Europe, since Europe is not like the yes it's not like an island with like one legal system you're immediately basically exposed to many different legal systems you kind of have to consider and that's sort of different here if you subscribe to one particular paradigm in in your uh, legal education then you can basically stick with that it doesn't matter if you are in criminal law here or constitutional law or whatever the like corporate law you pick. So that's very limiting to as a starting point. And needless to say, blockchain-based solutions are not relegated to any particular legal framework, specifically not a legal framework of a nation state. And so unfortunately, we we, we as a, the space of blockchain cryptocurrencies, quote-unquote, have done a lot of the damage to ourselves like the the term cryptocurrency by itself is kind of very misguided right i mean at the end of the day we, we're using all these metaphors for that space i.e prominent examples coins and tokens there is really not no coin right in, when you have a wallet you don't don't have any coins in that wallet right you, you have private keys that give you access to an entry on a blockchain that you can manipulate. And so we kind of adopted these metaphors that then alerted uh, people that do not understand technologies on a, on a fundamental level uh, to be um, concerned that this might be something like a money transmission or this might be something like a security when fundamentally as a um, technology, they don't fit any of those paradigms to begin with, meaning they're entirely different instruments. Like, obviously, almost no coin serves, quote-unquote, or token serves the same purpose, right? Even, even Bitcoin, like the lowercase b, 
Bitcoin being the mining reward of the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, even though it, it might in the original white paper have had this intention of being cash, it obviously will never be cash, can never be cash, right? Because like the that particular mm -hmm. metaphor that people are using of mining, there's a mining function, there's no minting function. But at the end of the day, it's a function of the system. So if I have another system, another technology, and there's a certain function, you and I decide that we want to use that in between the two of us as unit of account, that's our prerogative, right? We, we, and that's the default, as in most interactions between human beings are private in nature, and the agreement of what should be the medium of exchange and the unit of account, which can obviously both be different, is up to us, right? If between the two of us, we decide that Pokemons are money, then Pokemons are money. If we decide between the, uh, between the two of us that pencils are money, then pencils are money. And there's great examples from others, like other constituencies. If you go to uh, prison, then um, fiat money is counterfeit. And so people come up with other creative solutions where this is like pouches of fish and, and other things that all of a sudden become money. So the larger point here being is, what technologists and legal professionals keep ignoring is that this is an entirely new instrument and also keep ignoring that the default, at least in non-dictatorial states, the default of human interaction is private activity and that the secondary agreement of what is money is just that as a secondary agreement. And in the United States, if you take that as an example, the only time you're required by law, quote unquote, to use government fees is if, if you pay taxes, fines and fees to the government. Other than that, you don't have to use it. And it's kind of my expectation if um, in the future, uh, we should develop solutions that for the most part avoid kind of these government created um, monies, if you will, right? Because yes, government will always be incentivized to create more of that, which always means it's it's less for you, right? Because it's an, uh, it's in factual, uh, factually the same as taxation, right? If you create more money and as a kind of side note, which is something I'm working on, most money is actually not created by the Federal Reserve System, it's actually created by commercial banks. But so back to your original question, though, as you notice, I went on another tangent here. Um, <laughs> so what we've seen over and over again is that because of um, that conflation and different labeling of technologies, uh, more and more projects and that eventually became the default turn to law firms for an assessment, which that assessment essentially became product advice. So we have seen a lot of teams consequently engage with regulators and like try to get licenses and whatnot. That is utterly misguided as a starting point because there is simply a it's entirely quixotic and useless to attempt obviously to comply with every law under the planet which if you would have to do there is no such thing as a compliant token that it will never exist has never existed because the token is the peer-to-peer -peer instrument of a public blockchain so there is actually no friction point and a lot of times and i've said on many pan panels um, with other like 
lawyers, quote unquote, um, they they put out even simply semantic wrong statements such as the SEC or FinCEN will regulate blockchains and tokens. Well, none of the regulators get to regulate technology. They get to regulate people and entities within their jurisdictions, which that part is fine. But if that applies to you, to me, for the most part, what holds true is you just didn't implement the technology in its pure form as it meant to be, because otherwise you wouldn't actually be involved in the transaction. You wouldn't be a custodian and there's no need to, no, no possibility to regulate you. So, and because law lawyers don't in, understand technologies for the most part and technologists don't understand law for the most part, we got sure. into the strange uh, confluence where lawyers essentially give product advice. And I've seen more projects being ruined by that advice than I can count at this point in time. It's very, very sad. And unfortunately, um, I think one, one root problem is that we created these artificial disciplines, as in there's, you go to, uh, to school to become a computer engineer, a software engineer, or you go to school and you become a, a lawyer, but there's uh, very little interdisciplinary education. And that's what's really needed because at the heart of um, like our particular field, but many others, it's an overlap of where technology mean, uh, means legal, right? And that's why in our thesis, really what we're investing in at the end of the day is value transfer solutions, right? And value transfer solutions obviously will need to consider laws, will, will need to consider property rights and things of that nature. But again, it's very important to understand that this technology at its core introduces a concept where private in individuals can do private transactions. And that's the default rather than the default being stuff is regulated, right? So, and again, that comes down to many people being indoctrinated into a system that has stopped serving us where banks have been deputized to basically spy on their clients and we have additional corporations that do the same in in a more vicious way as well when really the default of your daily interaction is you can go into a store you hand over 20 bucks and you get your wares and no one obviously needs to see your passport for doing that and right. that is true for probably 100 of the transactions you did last month right but at many points during that transactions um deputized entities i.e banks, financial institutions were um, tracking you every step of the way as if you were doing something nefarious. That obviously makes no sense. I mean, that, that's mm -hmm. an overhead that we are paying for um, at this point in time that has stopped making sense decades ago, right? We, we need to focus on, yes, certain products obviously shouldn't be able to be traded um that have a tremendous effect on large parts of the population i.e whatever weapons of mass destructions and poisons and whatnot yes so you need to focus on the objects on the products on on the services rather than what's happening now where the default state is kind of that well we, we assume that you're a criminal you kind of have to prove that you're not right <laughs> that's kind of a, a little bit absurd Anyway, so right. as you can tell, I'm 
semi-passionate about that, but it always comes back to, in our particular case, if you implement the technology correctly, meaning in a non-custodial fashion, building peer-to-peer -peer solutions, and you're not part of the transaction, ideally, you actually shouldn't even know who it is, which comes back to um, the, the default transaction is anonymous, right? You're, you're handing mm -hmm. over cash and you're getting a product back and neither party kind of cares what your first name or last name is, date of birth, what nationality you are. That's, that's really the default. That's how you should be thinking about implementing the technology before you ever talk to a lawyer because <laughs> the, the job of, the, uh, of a lawyer, quote unquote, specifically in, in this particular country is tell you all the things not to do. There's very little money to be had and fees to be charged if I just tell you what you should be doing. <laughs> and my advice to the startups will typically be, well, implement the technology correctly. That's how you stay out of trouble. You don't want to store customer data. You don't want to know about the transactions. So you want to implement, um, you don't want to do scams. That kind of goes without saying. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but again, there's unfortunately there's it's a typical misalignment of interest, right? So it's not in a, a lawyer's interest to do exactly that, unfortunately. Which is also why we probably at the end of the day will see f much fewer lawyers, right? Because a, a lot of what we are investing in, what we're seeing in that space, is essentially legal technology. If you think about yeah, smart right. contracts and things like that, and so. And, and plus, I, th I think it's it's not a very, for the most part, gratifying job, right? That's why I'm no longer in the legal profession. <laughs> I, was, I was very glad that I could retire after like being a lawyer for a very short period of time because I couldn't imagine my oh. life shuffling papers around and telling people what not to do, essentially. True, true. I think we'll wrap it up here. Thanks yeah. a lot, Christian, for coming up today to Fundraising sure. Radio and sharing your ideas on blockchain, on cryptocurrencies. And I absolutely loved your comparison between uh, adoption of uh, cryptocurrencies and adoption of the world unique language. So that, that was great. Absolutely loved it. So thanks again and have a good day. Sure. Yeah. And so I'm going to expand on um, the particular article that I published on Forbes sure. about like, pitching the blockchain. We see I'm expanding on that right now. What I typically do that. I republish this on Hacker Noon in a little longer form because there's a, a word limit on, on Forbes specifically. And then people can kind of go into a little more detail and read that. And that will, will help both parties, right? Will help the entrepreneur and help, help the VC to, to not waste each other's time. And, Absolutely. I'll publish the link to that article in the description of this episode. Sounds good. Take care. You really thought it's the end of the episode? Nope, not yet. In these uncertain times when a weird virus is spinning out of control and investors are trying to figure out where to put their money and not to lose it all, I have an answer. Invest in human capital. I will be among the first 10 people to participate in something called human IPO. So shortly about how it works. You can buy futures on my time now when it costs just $100 per hour. And when I become Mark Zuckerberg 2.0 and my time is worth $1,000 per hour, you can sell it or redeem it, either making 10x return or bringing me to your firm as an advisor or speaker for a few hours. My offering is not live yet, so now you can only subscribe to my updates. But please do so and become the first one to buy my time when my offering goes live. 
To sum it up, in dark days, buy time, not toilet paper, and your money won't be flushed into the toilet. I'll leave a link to my profile on Human IPO in the description of this episode, and thanks again for listening to Fundraising Radio.